well-regulated militia be necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be talking with Adam Kraut, Executive Director of the Second Amendment Foundation, here in just a couple of minutes. Uh, focusing on a couple of the latest uh, legal efforts on the part of the Second Amendment Foundation. But I also want to ask Adam what his thoughts are on the uh, post-Bruin legal environment that we are uh, seeing around the country, including um, a very, very interesting declaration from a, a Second Circuit panel. We'll get to that here in just a minute. Before we do, however, let's talk about this for just a moment. Joe Biden's America. It is crushing us. You've got companies laying off tens of thousands of workers, one after the other. Americans working two jobs just to get by. Inflation pushing hardworking families to the brink, as you well know. And a digital dollar could be coming down the pipeline to completely destroy our way of life. The truth is, you need a plan. You know it, and I know it. And that's why you should call Gold Co. So you can diversify your savings and investments with gold and silver before things get worse. They're a six-time Inc. 5000 winner, 2022 Company of the Year, with thousands of five-star reviews. And they've helped people like you and me place over $1 billion in gold and silver. Right now, they're offering up to $10,000 in free silver while supplies last. And if you call them today, qualified callers will get a free Ronald Reagan half-ounce silver coin. So don't wait. Call Gold Co. at 855-412-3806 today. That's 855-412-3806. And now, let's turn our attention to our conversation with Adam Kraut, the Executive Director of the Second Amendment Foundation. SAF busy from coast to coast. More than 50 active lawsuits right now. We're not going to be able to talk about all of them. But we are going to highlight a couple of the uh, latest litigation efforts on the part of the Second Amendment Foundation. Take a look and a listen. Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show, sir. It's good to talk with you today. Yeah, nice to see you, Cam. Here. Absolutely. Uh, and listen, there's so much to talk about. We could spend all day, literally all day, talking about the dozens of cases that Second Amendment Foundation is involved with around the country. But I want to kind of talk about some of the most recent ones, um, including this really interesting case involving public housing. Um, because I, I honestly, Adam, I kind of thought that this was a settled issue for the most part. But no, we're still seeing these housing authorities, the latest in New York State, Tell its residents, if you live here, you've got to give up your right to keep and bear arms. Yeah, so uh, the Second Amendment Foundation, this is actually our fourth case on this issue. We had one, another one of these last year down in Tennessee. Uh, before that, we had two up in Illinois, one of which uh, is even cited in our complaint because the language is, I believe, verbatim the same as it was in uh, this particular case. And what's kind of really interesting about this, uh, you know, we're at this point, uh, close to the, uh, what, 15 years post Heller, um, you know, hand, handgun uh, in the home for self-defense, uh, certainly individual, right? And yet you still have government entities that are saying, well, nope, not here. Uh, publicly funded gun government aid entities for that matter too. Um, so this, this case, it's unfortunate we even had to bring it. One of the plaintiffs had written, uh, you know, to the attorney for the housing authority and they basically came back and said, too bad, so sad, we're not changing our policy, despite even being shown that another housing agency with this exact language had entered into, uh, you know, stipulated judgment against them and a permanent injunction. So, um, you know, we, after chatting with him and a couple other tenants, uh, brought this lawsuit on their behalf to vindicate their rights. Uh, just because they accept public funds for housing doesn't mean that they should you know, lose their right to uh, self-defense and keep and bear arms. Absolutely. Do you know, have, have any of these housing authorities successfully defended these policies? I'm unaware of any that have actually uh, successfully done it. I, I'm aware of 
including uh, our cases. I'm aware of four public housing cases where they've all lost. Um, I believe one was uh, two. Well, the Tennessee one was in state court. The other two up in Illinois were federal. And I believe the one that challenged the Wilmington uh, Housing Authority down in Delaware, I believe that was a state case as well, if memory serves. So um, I, I haven't seen a court yet uh, uphold the, the housing agency's um, policy on this. And I just can't imagine why they would want to even fight this. I, I mean, I, I I guess because they truly don't want their residents uh, exercising their Second Amendment rights. That's the only thing I can think of, because you're right. I mean, this is a it's a stinker of a, a legal argument that, uh, well, just because, you know, we uh, take government funds, we can deny our residents their inherent civil rights. What other civil liberties would you sacrifice or give up if you live in subsidized housing? Oh, I'm unaware of any that are, <laughs> you know, constitutionally enumerated. So they don't certainly don't lose their right to free speech or, you know, search and seizure. Um, so it's just it's kind of mind boggling that they've taken this position and that they want to you know go through the process of expending the, the funds to defend such an indefensible position. Absolutely. And uh, well, I, I'm glad that you're taking the fight to them. Um, this is in New York. We uh, we also saw recently Second Circuit uh, three judge panel. I, I, you know, the, the panel didn't. We didn't we didn't get everything we wanted. In fact, I think we didn't get a lot of what we wanted. Um, they did say that, uh, yes, the injunction against uh, the sort of the vampire rule, right? Gun owners can't come inside a uh, property unless it's been posted that they're allowed. That 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 can be a uh, stare uh, that that injunction can remain in effect. Um, a couple of other provisions of uh, New York's concealed carry laws. But for the most part, the Second Circuit panel upheld a lot of these sensitive places and a lot of these restrictions on you know, uh, basically good moral character when you're applying for a carry license, which is an arbitrary determination. And I was really concerned, uh, Adam, when I saw this, um, Matthew Placken, the attorney general from New Jersey, cited the Second Circuit. Uh, he's asking the Third Circuit to, to basically follow suit and to uh, uh, allow for enforcement of New Jersey's post-Bruin carry laws. And he said that, um, among other points, the panel cautioned against putting too much stock in the lack of, quote, Positive legislation from a particular place, which Placken says noted may well reflect a, quote, lack of political demand rather than constitutional limitations. Uh, the panel also noted that evidence that some jurisdictions actually attempted to enact analogous regulations that were rejected on constitutional grounds is more probative. Uh, and a lack of such constitutional disputes suggests that the restrictions permissibility was settled. This I, I got to tell you, Adam, this seems to me a very, very dangerous road that the Second Circuit is going down because the Supreme Court said in, in Bruin that the test is the text of the Second Amendment and then the history and the tradition of the right to keep and bear arms. And again, we're talking about a national tradition, right? So, you know, a couple of territorial laws or a couple of local ordinances is not evidence of, of a longstanding national tradition. And here you have the Second Circuit say, well, just because there aren't any uh, historical analogs for the state of New York to point to, that's okay. We can still say that uh, that these sensitive places uh, are, are allowed. We can still say that these good moral character clauses are acceptable, even if there's no historic analog. Isn't this just a flat-out rejection or a rewriting of the Bruin test? Uh, it sure seemingly is a way that they're just trying to skirt what the Supreme Court has said, you know, again for uh, this time however many times they've said it in the past because the the test that came out of Bruin was really what Heller said and the court came back finally and said you know we told you and they reiterated it several times um you know the court also said that 
the the lack of laws, uh, you know, analogous or verbatim copies that existed at the time. Um, if that issue was something that was dealt with, you know, and certainly people were violent throughout history, uh, and that you know restrictions on other things did exist, um, that that's probative that you know it was considered and settled that the, these laws. So, you know, don't comport with the constitutional requirements that the Second Amendment demands. So I think it's judges trying to be clever with ways that they can help assist the states uh, uphold their their new laws that they've implemented. I mean, you look at uh, particularly the sensitive places laws that were enacted post Bruin. Um, a lot of these we've never seen before in any context you know, prior to uh, even with restrictive permitting regimes, the people that were able to actually acquire permits never had these restriction. So all of a sudden to say that, oh, yeah, um, you know, these all these places are now off limits and this comports with the nation's history and tradition is just I, I it's a interesting case study in how to potentially ignore what the Supreme Court says. And it's going to draw the ire of the Supreme Court because they clearly said what they meant uh, more than once. Yeah, absolutely. I I and, you know, we've seen the court take a, a hands off approach um, to these emergency appeals uh, to date, and it's been frustrating to watch. I I, I don't think that it is uh, indicative of where the court actually stands on these issues, um, but it is frustrating that, uh, you know, they have not intervened at, at early stages of the case. But, you know, maybe when you see flagrant rewriting of the Supreme Court's decisions, like what we're seeing from the Second Circuit, maybe that will uh uh, probably Supreme Court to say, all right, you know what, it is time for us to step in and uh, set things right. Yeah, the Supreme Court is an interesting animal. I mean, there's plenty of people that uh, study it and try to articulate the reasons why it does or doesn't do something. But one of the very basic premises is just from a procedural posture of where the case is in its trajectory. Uh, you know, these are preliminary injunctions that have gone up on appeal. They're not decided on the merits, the underlying facts and issues of the case. And a lot of the time, the court wants that to be settled by the lower courts, although the way they rule on these is usually indicative of how they'd rule on the merits anyway. Um, the other thing is that, you know, there's currently sensitive places cases in uh, three, maybe four circuits off the top of my head. You have the Third Circuit with New Jersey. You have the Second Circuit with New York. You have the Ninth Circuit with California. Um, and so, you know, they also like to allow the circuits to kind of figure it out on their own. It might create a split where one circuit says, yes, this is permissible. Another says no. And then the Supreme Court comes in and levels the playing field and sets it back to square one that, you know, this is the, the, the law of the land and you all need to abide by this, uh, um, which is exactly what we saw with Bruin. No, that's that's true. Um, and, and you're right. Uh, we do have this going on in, in multiple circuit uh, courts of appeals in various stages of a litigation as well. But, uh, you know, sooner rather than later, uh, hopefully one of these cases will get the uh, the court's attention. Um, you know, I, I, we talked about the public housing case, but uh, what are some of the areas and, and I'll talk about generally the the areas of litigation that that you're looking at? Obviously, you've got a finite amount of resources. The Second Amendment Foundation um, can't accept every case or challenge every law immediately. So when when you're looking at, OK, these are the the, the cases that we need to pursue. Um, what, what's guiding you right now, Adam? So there's, there's really two tracks of cases that we look at. There's the strategic litigation where we sit down and we look at the law of the land right now and where things are and how we can attempt to alter that. 
<clears throat> alter that landscape for a positive result for the Second Amendment. Um, so you'll see that with you know all the assault weapons ban cases, the magazine capacity restrictions, the 18 to 20 challenges, and now the sensitive places ones being very, very clear examples of that. Uh, and then there's opportunistic uh, stuff that you know somebody comes through the door, we look at what their uh, circumstances are, we see that there is a public, a tangible public Public benefit to pursuing that on their behalf. It's not simply just helping them in a situation, but there's a broader public good uh, and might not be within the plan, but there's an opportunity and there's the resources available. And we look at what the positive upshot is and decide that, you know what, we'll take that case now. Um, so it's kind of split between those. Um, it's, you know, right now, it's going to be interesting to see what the court does with the assault weapons stuff, uh, with the sensitive places. You know, I suspect that that will run back up to the Supreme Court at some point. Uh, the permitting is another one that uh, there was language in Bruin about that you're seeing jurisdictions do stuff in. Um, for instance, we filed a lawsuit last week in California uh, challenging the L.A. County Sheriff's Department's uh, delay in processing permits. They were, I think, between a year and a year and a half. There was also a local PD where their fees were uh, in excess of $1,000 to acquire a permit. Um, so that certainly fits within what the Supreme Court kind of cautioned about uh, as far as excessive fees. There's a bill that goes into effect in California this coming January uh, for the jurisdictions that require a psych evaluation that the entire cost of that is now on the applicant. Uh, it used to be capped at $150, which is still quite a bit of money. I'm from Pennsylvania. I mean, where I'm from, but you know, to get a carry permit, it's 20 bucks. You walk into the sheriff's office, you fill out the application. They run, we're point of contact states, run it through picks, it, it pings nicks. And assuming you're not disqualified, you walk out the door with your permit. So it's, um, it's sad that these other jurisdictions have imposed all these requirements and not only the loopholes that people have to jump through to get one. Uh, but also the amount of money that somebody needs to expend. And then the time on top of that, you know, take off work, go here for, you know, an evaluation, apply here, it takes an hour. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's just prohibitive from even being able to pursue it. Absolutely. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, in Virginia, it's it's not 20 bucks. I wish it was 20 bucks, but, you know, I think it's $50 for uh, me to get my carry license. So it's still... You know, it's not four figures like Laverne, California is charging or a lot of these other jurisdictions. Yeah. Um, it's not taking uh, last time I had to apply. I got it, it was about three weeks before I got my permit, uh, unlike Los Angeles County, where it's, uh, you know, 18 months or, or, or at least a year. Uh, and as long as 18 months, you know, one of the other aspects we were talking with uh, Chuck Michelle about this uh, a lawsuit last week. One of the other aspects that I think is really important about that case is one of the plaintiffs doesn't live in, in California. He's a Florida resident, right? Who yeah. would like to be able to, he's a legal gun owner, he can carry in Florida, but he can't carry in California because no out-of-state residents can carry in Florida. There's no way for you or for I to carry in California legally because yeah. our permits aren't recognized and California doesn't have a, a non-resident uh, permit process. To the best of my knowledge, Adam, this is the first case that really argues our right to keep and bear arms should not end at the state line, right? This is the first real case that gets into um, how, how do other states get to regulate our right to carry? Yeah, I'd be lying to you if I told you I was aware of another challenge on that exact issue. Um, it, you know, it's certainly something that does need to be resolved. Uh, California has, as you, you know, pointed out, erected a complete barrier to it. Not only will we not recognize your state's permits, uh, regardless of the training requirements, but we won't even allow you to apply for our permit. 
Uh, and I think that that's something that the courts are going to have to grapple with. And I don't see how they you know, arrive at any other conclusion other than, yes, there, there needs to be one pathway. Uh, not sure it matters which pathway, but either you need to allow people to apply for non-resident permits or you need to recognize out-of-state permits. Um, you know, and that that could really we could really get into the weeds into that discussion as to, OK, can if we're going to recognize other permits, you know, do they need to have the exact training requirements or something substantially similar? And that was, you know, prior to Bruin, a lot of times that's exactly how some states did, in fact, look at it. You know, your your requirements are similar to ours, so we'll recognize yours or you don't have any training, so we're not going to recognize yours. But we do have a non-resident permit you can apply for things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, all of this hopefully gets fleshed out. It would be nice if we actually had people on the other side who recognize that we are talking about a fundamental civil right, but uh, I guess we're going to have to keep litigating until they get it through their skulls that that is, in fact, what we're talking about. That is, in fact, what they're infringing on. Uh, and that's why groups like the Second Amendment Foundation won't stop fighting until this right is strong and secure. Yeah. And unfortunately, it is not a fast process. That That is the the sad part about it. And I, you know, we, I always try to caution people that just because a lawsuit was filed doesn't mean you're going to see results immediately. Uh, sometimes, you know, you, you get a good pathway and you get a good preliminary injunction that stands and you do get results immediately. And other times it can take years to to deal with that stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, you know, I think Bruin's a perfect example of this, right? I mean, this was Bruin wasn't even really the, the first case that uh, we were hoping would be a vehicle uh, for right to carry. I mean, you can go all the way back to Peruta uh, in California, right? And then yeah. the uh, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus New York City, which was mooted when uh, New York City changed its rules. So, yeah, the, 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 the fight to get justice here, you're right. It's not quick. It's certainly not easy. Um, but, you know, it, it is not only critically important we're winning. We're, 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 we're seeing these victories. And, you know, we can talk about uh, the desperation of these activist judges to try to uphold some of these gun control laws. But, uh, you know, I, I, I will say, I think in the post-Bruin environment, um, we are seeing some successes that we would not have otherwise. You agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you see judges that are appointed by Democratic presidents, usually there's an inference that they are a liberal judge. Sometimes there's horse trading that goes on in the Senate and, you know, a Democrat will appoint a Republican for something else. But when you see judges that are appointed by Democratic presidents ruling in favor of, you know, the the plaintiff and, and validating that there is a Second Amendment right on things that you never would have thought prior to Bruin would have ever been a thing, I would say it's safe to say that, yeah, a lot of good has come out of Bruin. Um, and, you know, some of the courts are trying to inject and, and muddy the waters with, you know, what the Second Circuit just did as to, okay, well, how can we take something that's clear and make it so that there's some room to wiggle around in again? Uh, and I think you're just always going to kind of see that gamesmanship, unfortunately, to some extent. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, listen, Adam, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it. Look forward to doing this again very soon. And of course, if folks want more information about what Second Amendment Foundation is doing, if they want to get involved in the fight themselves, saf.org is the website. And thank you for all of your activism, Adam, really. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, it was great to be here. And I look forward to joining you again, Cam. Me too. We'll talk again soon. Adam Crowd joining us from the Second Amendment Foundation here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My thanks to Adam for joining us on the program today. Looking forward to welcoming him back again in the very near future. Right now, let's turn our attention to today's armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We will start there with a case out of Joplin, Missouri, where a suspended sentence, actually more than one, has been granted in a home invasion and robbery case. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty serious crime, right? 
35-year-old man pleaded guilty this week to two of the five felony counts he was facing in this home invasion robbery. And Ricky Cook of Joplin, Missouri, was granted suspended sentences and probation in lieu of prison time. Jasper County Circuit Courts, where this uh, all took place, Cook was uh, originally charged with um, first-degree robbery, armed criminal action, resisting arrest, uh, and stealing, as well as a misdemeanor count of assault. Uh, he ended up taking a guilty plea to uh, one count of first-degree burglary, one count of stealing, and the felony counts of first-degree burglary, armed criminal action, resisting arrest, as well as the misdemeanor charge, all dismissed. The uh, judge accepting the plea bargain and assessing Cook seven years on each conviction. So, again, I mean, if these sentences have been ordered to be served consecutively, we're looking at 14 years concurrently, which is more common. Still looking at seven years with, you know, time off for good behavior, probably more like three and a half to four years behind bars. But nah, nah none of that's going to happen because the judge said, uh, you know what, seven years, but we're going to suspend all seven. Instead, we're going to place you on supervised probation for five years. So, uh, oh, oh, and 75 hours of community service. Can't forget that. Right. And if you don't abide by the terms of your probation, then theoretically, we could sentence you to to the original seven years. But that rarely, if ever, happens. So the facts of this case, October 10th of last year, Cook uh, unlawfully entered a home in Joplin, armed with a handgun, threatened to shoot a victim if he did not comply with his demands. He then stole some coins, cash, personal checks, and clothing. Joplin police uh, tried to stop a motorcyclist whose clothing matched the description of the suspect. He ended up fleeing, but uh, was taken into custody when his motorcycle broke down. Uh, the uh, motorcyclist, identified as the uh, defendant in this case in possession of a coat that had been uh, taken from Kirby, uh, the uh, victim in this case. Uh, Mr. Cook, Ricky Cook, the uh, suspect here, had also pleaded guilty last month, November 6th, to counts of vehicle tampering and possession of a controlled substance from an arrest in uh, 2020, uh, as well as unlawful possession of a firearm and possession of a controlled substance from a uh, arrest uh, about a week later in 2020 as well. Um, the judge ordered the sentences that Cook was assessed on Monday run concurrently with the suspended sentences that he received in the 2020 cases. That's right. So this is not even his first go around with the court system. Previous felony convictions and uh, suspended sentences that time increased uh, uh, criminal activity. Now you're up to a home invasion and a robbery, still a suspended sentence. You got to ask the question, what the hell does it take to actually be sentenced to prison in the show me state of Missouri these days? All right. On to today's armed citizen story in uh, South Carolina, where uh, police say a shooting in a restaurant parking lot was an act of self-defense. No charges will be filed. I uh, don't have a lot of details about this. This, um, Happened in Hendersonville. Uh, I, I apologize. I said this was South Carolina. This actually is uh, uh, North Carolina, but uh, Southern North Carolina, near the uh, border. Uh, South Carolina media reporting on this story. But the uh, Hendersonville, North Carolina Police Department said on Tuesday that a shooting back on November 24th, in which a uh, 30-year-old from Asheville, North Carolina, Elijah Edward Timmons, was uh, shot and killed. Um, no charges will be filed in this case. Police say the shooting was an act of self-defense. Happened just after 2.30 in the morning in the parking lot of the Orchard Bar and Grill at Henderson Crossing. Uh, officers found Timmons with a gunshot wound to the head. A gun at the scene, also uh, believed to belong to Timmons, was uh, found. Um, according to police at the time, Timmons was engaged in an altercation with a suspect before he was fatally shot. 
Uh, but again, now police say that the suspect was actually the victim who is acting in self-defense. Finally today, our good deed of the day, in the right place, at the right time, we'll be able to do the right thing. I'm going to take a little issue, just a minor issue with the uh, headline here. Firefighters, family dog, save nine from burning Atlanta apartments. I don't have an issue with the firefighters being credited. I guess I don't really even have an issue with the dog being credited, but the dog can't talk. The dog can bark. The dog can alert its owners. Hey, there's something going on. But it was actually the owners of the dog who ended up going door to door through this apartment complex, warning people that there was a fire. Uh, This happened at the Terrace Complex in Atlanta, Georgia, just before uh, 2 a.m. this morning. So apparently this uh, just a few hours ago, Susan Davis lives in the building. She says she was sleeping when her neighbor warned her about the fire. She said, I woke up by people hollering, fire, fire, smoke, smoke, let's go. She said, I started out the front door smoke and then the flame said I had to back up, go through the back door. Some of her neighbors were not as lucky. Uh, folks on the uh, higher levels found themselves with nowhere uh, to go, unable to escape the flames. Firefighters say when they showed up on scene, there was a pregnant woman and three small children who were hanging out of an upstairs window screaming for help. Firefighters were able to rescue them, and then they realized that there were more victims in the back of the building. They found five adults trapped on a balcony. They were also uh, brought to the ground safely. And neighbors say that, again that they were first alerted that something was wrong by a family dog named Summer. Summer started barking, woke up her family, and then the family went around warning the other residents. Davis says the dog let us know. She let us know that there was smoke in the house. Well, yeah, the dog, again, and its owners. Let's not forget the humans involved here. Very I'm glad that Summer, you know, started barking. Hope that uh, Summer gets a big treat. But uh, in the right place at the right time, we weren't able to do the right thing. Our Summer's owners, who rather than just fleeing to safety themselves, again, took the time to warn their neighbors that they, too, needed to uh, flee the scene. Glad that uh, everybody was able to make it out safe and sound. Thanks again to the quick thinking of, yes, Summer the dog, but its owners and the firefighters who arrived on the scene as well. So we, uh, again, tip of the cap to the owners there, and uh, hopefully Summer gets some steak tonight. That is going to do it for this edition of Barry and Arms Cam & Company. want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. Looking forward to seeing you back here again tomorrow as we continue discussing the latest Second Amendment news and information from all across the nation. Of course, you don't have to wait until uh, tomorrow's Cam & Company. Just go to BarryAndArms.com. We are constantly updating the website with the latest 2A information that you need to know about. And if you like what you see, I'd encourage you to become a VIP or VIP Gold member. Actually doing, uh, well, by the time you see this, I will have done this week's VIP Gold live chat with Hot Airs Ed Morrissey. But we do it every Wednesday. Would love for you to be a part of it as well. All you have to do, go to barrenarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS. You can get a significant savings on your VIP or VIP Gold membership. And as our way of saying thanks for showing your support, we're going to give you exclusive content you won't find anywhere else, like the live chat that we do every week with Ed Morrissey, but also daily content as well. News stories analysis you won't find anywhere else because your support really does matter. It truly makes a difference. So thank you again. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe, and be free.